This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, and so glad that you're here with me today. This, my friends, is the last episode of 2018. A new season will begin in February and run another 13 episodes, taking us through the final throes of winter and into the spring. Keep in mind my new podcast, Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold, will not take a break. More stories and more interviews over there for the next couple of months if you are so inclined. Remember, you can also become a patron at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, slash most notorious, and get ad-free episodes delivered straight to you from both of my shows, plus other cool stuff as well. So on to the show. We haven't done a serial killer episode in a while, but today we've got one for you, and as it turns out, possibly the most famous one in the history of France. So without further ado, let's begin. It's with great pleasure that I introduce journalist and author Richard Tomlinson. His newest book is called Landru's Secret, The Deadly Seduction of France's Lonely Hearts Serial Killer. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. What an interesting subject matter. I mean, honestly, I'd never heard of this case before I picked up your book. Where did you first learn about the Landrieu case? Well, it was a long time ago, uh, in the early 1980s, when I was a student in Paris studying uh, for a PhD in modern French history. And somebody uh, said to me, uh, because I was looking in particular at attitudes to women in the early 20th century in France, and they said, you should really look at the Landru case. Um, and I, I'd never heard of him either. Um, and I went to the newspapers uh, and looked up his trial, which was in 1921. And it was absolutely saturation newspaper coverage, which mercifully is all online now. And the thing that really intrigued me was the, 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 
that the first day, or actually it was the second day, because they read out the indictment and various other things on the first day, when they got to the first of 10 women he was alleged to have killed. Um, and I looked at this case and I thought, this really just doesn't make sense because it was a, she was a seamstress called Jeanne Couchet, living in fairly straightened circumstances in Paris, single mother with a teenage boy. And her brother-in-law said that she was worth, in modern money, probably about the equivalent of $350,000. And that just didn't make sense to me. And that's sort of how I got interested in it. I thought this, this just seems wrong. Um, and it sort of went on from there. And over the years, I've always taken an interest in the case. Um, and I finally got round to it uh, as a serious subject about four or five years ago when there was an exhibition in Paris. And they released uh, for the exhibition uh, quite a few of the documents that are, are in the Paris police archives in Paris relating to the case. And I looked at these and I realized that actually my original hunch uh, about the case might just possibly be true. And that's where it took off. What were some of the challenges you faced as you researched this book? Well, I think, I think the, the main challenge was the challenge they faced at the time, which is it's a tremendously complicated case. I mean, this man, he's a petty swindler. He's on the run from the law um, and he goes, uh, he, he, he flees the police just before the outbreak of the First World War, leaving a wife uh, with, and four children uh, in southern Paris, where he's in his latest bolt hole. And, and over the course of uh, the First World War and just afterwards, he uh, ten women and the son of one of the women disappear at two country houses uh, outside Paris. Um, and the allegation is that Landru killed them. Um, and also during that period, the police calculated that he was in contact romantically via Lonely Hearts adverts matrimonial agencies and various other um, vehicles uh, with 283 women. Well, that figure is wrong. It's actually more. Um, you can figure that out from quite a lot of the um, documents that are buried in the, the Paris police archives. Um, so that's a sort of first complexity is that the police didn't even get that part right. Um, I also think that it's fairly clear that the police were led to conclude that Landru had killed 11 individuals, 10 women and one young man, um, simply on the basis of a list that he kept in his carnet, his little notebook, very incriminating notebook, which they discovered when they arrested him. The trouble with it is that there's witnesses uh, who were never called at his trial who saw some extremely suspicious things going on at the house where he lived in the country, um, foul smoke coming out of the chimney um, and also comings and goings at a nearby pond, um, which suggest that actually he may well have killed more. Um, in fact, I'm pretty, pretty sure that he did kill more. And that's what I say in the book. So you're dealing with different levels of complexity. And at the center of it all is this extraordinary man who may well have been completely mad by the end of this, but, but, but this 
terrible odyssey, really. Um, but it's uh, another kind of conundrum because he was declared fit to stand trial. So that was the challenge. Um, and that was why I sort of explored the archives in the end with such relish, because, in fact, you can find if you dig a dig through all of this material um, for long enough, you can find answers to quite a few of the questions. So these 10 women and one young man, you've mentioned that he will eventually be tried for murdering, all vanished between 1915 and 1919. Would you mind summarizing the circumstances of their disappearances, just in general, who these women were, what they had in common with each other, and what the things were that kind of tied their disappearances together? Sure. I I think the first thing I'd say is that it, the, the prosecution case tried to simplify everything by saying these women were all identical and Landrieu's motive was the same each time that he was trying to steal their money and then kill them. Then he killed them in order to prevent them going to the police. The trouble with that thesis is that I reckon only three of the women were really um, rich enough to be targets for a marriage swindler, which is what Landrieu had been, uh, among other things, before the war. Um, three or four of the women were almost completely destitute. So you're already looking at differences between them. They all lived in Paris. They lived, they, they ranged in age from uh, 19 was the youngest. She was easily the youngest um, all the way to 55. Um, so there's quite a big age range. And if one goes through them in terms of the no, the women who were known to have disappeared, um, the first one was a seamstress. The second one was an unemployed um, governess, I guess you'd call her. The third did have a little bit of money and she was a retired governess. The fourth was a, um, a cleaning woman. The fifth was a typist. Um, the sixth was a nanny. She was the youngest. Um, the seventh was a housekeeper. The eighth was um, a dressmaker. The ninth was a dressmaker and the tenth was a prostitute. So they're mostly working class or p perhaps just on the fringes of, 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 of middle class. But they, they range in terms of their income, in terms of their age. And I felt once one got into the pre-trial documents, they, they had very different personalities as well. Some of them had similarities, but they were all labelled at, at the trial as being typically, it's very chauvinist, you know, typically foolish, vulnerable, silly women um, who were infatuated with Landru, and that is why they um, were, were targets, because he, he knew he could deceive them. In terms of how they disappeared, um, he rented two houses outside Paris consecutively. The first of them was uh, in a little town called Vernouillet, which is about probably about uh, 20 miles uh, west of Paris uh, by the Seine, the, by the River Seine. Um, and he had this house from December 1914 to August 1915. And Three of the women, the first three women on the murder charge sheet, were known to have disappeared there. How 
they disappeared is an interesting question. There was smokes that neighbours saw churning out of his chimney. Possibly um, he was seen, he had a little delivery van going back and forth, um, uh, removing the bodies. But there's no real direct evidence, which is part of the problem here, which is that you're already in a situation where people, when they're interviewed, years later, can't really remember. They remember him being very fishy. They thought he might have been a German spy, but they didn't really have any hard, conclusive evidence. He then ends the lease on that house and he rents um, a house from December 1915 until his arrest in April 1919 outside a village called Gambe. Uh, and the house is called the Villa Trick. Um, and it's about a mile outside Gambe in open country. The amazing thing is I was there uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's still there. You can actually buy it if you want. Uh, it's on the market at the moment. But but the house has really not changed at all. It's, it was a sort of boxy two up, two down house with a huge garden and outhouses at the back. And seven of the women... Uh, the last seven on the murder charge sheet disappeared there from 1915 to 1919. And Landry's style, if that's a slightly tasteless way of putting it, but when he decides he's going to kill these women, they take a train from Paris and he buys a train ticket, a return ticket for himself and a one-way ticket for the, woman, the women. And they don't come back to Paris. In his notebook... He again and again records the hour of the day when something happens and it's not clear what is happening, but it happens to coincide with the time when the women vanish, really, in the sense that uh, it's the last the last known sighting of them has been very close to that time. So the presumption of the prosecution was that he was noting the time in his diary, uh, his notebook, uh, because it was the hour of, of the murder. And when I say they disappear, um, they disappear in this sense that nobody ever figured out uh, how Landru had killed them, although I have fairly strong suspicion that he must have strangled them. Um, there was no forensic evidence that could be tied directly to the women, although there were some charred fragments of bone dubbed very, very small discovered beneath a pile of leaves in an open shed at the end of his garden at, uh, in, in the house called the Villa Trick at Gambe. Um, and the police scoured the house and grounds. They drained it or half drained a nearby, nearby pond, but they never found anything. So that is why the women were called in French les disparus, the disappeared, because they had, they, they had just vanished. Um, and that was another thing that the police had to tackle um, when they came to investigate Landru. Why do you think it might have been strangulation? Well, I think you can see when you go to the first house, the one in Vernouillet, that it, it was really the only possible way he could have killed them without uh, alerting the neighbours, because the house is actually, it's a strange house, it's a sort of double-fronted house, but it's on a residential street um, and he's got neighbours on either side and if he'd used a gun they would have heard the sound of gunshot um, no question about that so I think that rules out um, shooting them 
I think it also, you know, there were theories that he um, he might have poisoned them. They found a book of famous poisoners on uh, in, in in a flat he he rented later uh, after his arrest. After his arrest, they found it. Um, but I think that he wasn't. That was quite a risky way to try and kill the women uh, because he, he, you know there was always the possibility of a struggle um, and. It's possible, um, but I, I think it's less likely in the strangulation. The, the, the circumstantial evidence that he strangled them is is that he he did definitely strangle three pet dogs uh, the, 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 that had belonged to the last of his victims, uh, the prostitute, and also um, earlier on a cat, and and their remains were found in the garden at Gombe. So he said at his trial, uh, rather. Um, creepily that um, str- strangulation in relation to the dogs he never admitted uh, anything else he said that strangulation was was the gentlest of deaths so i think that's that that's probably uh his was his murder method i'd like to ask you about motive as well what do you think prompted him to to kill some of these women the ones he wouldn't have reaped any financial reward from after their deaths yeah, well, this this is where I think it gets really complicated because I think I think that Lan there was a whole question. I think it, it, perhaps one has to preface this with 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 the whole question about Landru's state of mind because he had been. I'll rewind the tape a little bit and I'll come back to what the, the, to your question because he had been a petty swindler, uh, not a very successful one before the war and. In 1904, he was examined by three psychiatrists, top psychiatrists. They weren't quacks after he um, faked a suicide attempt um, while he was awaiting trial for various frauds and and swindles. It didn't seem like a serious suicide attempt, which is why they called in the, the psychiatrists. And one of them concluded that he was, quote, on the frontiers of madness, but he had not yet crossed the frontier. This psychiatrist felt sufficiently alarmed, though, by Landry's behaviour that he warned his wife um, to be on guard about what he might do in future. The two other psychiatrists at the time endorsed that view. I guess in English you'd say he was a borderline case. But they couldn't really decide whether he was he was in, insane. And there was a lot of pressure at the time uh, for criminals not to be... Uh, sent to a lunatic asylum <laughs> if if they could possibly be put on trial. Now, if you fast forward uh, 15 years to, to his arrest in 1919, the same psychiatrists, uh, exactly the same, come back to examine him. And it's a very strange uh, report that they produce because there's almost no evidence they, 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 they use to support their clinical judgment. But they say that he is, in fact, completely responsible for his actions and mentally fit to stand trial, almost making it sound as if their previous diagnosis was wrong. Now, going back to his motives, what I found most difficult, I decided that he 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 had crossed the frontiers of madness. But I think one can, in the end, find a connecting thread. Um, and it's not to do with money, although he's an opportunist. I mean, if there is money to be stolen, of course, he'll steal it. And I think sometimes with one or two of the women, that probably was his prime motive. But the one connecting thread that comes through all of this 
is his misogyny. Um, he's out to get women. He, he despises women and he says all sorts of terrible things both before and after his trial about how women are just there to be obeyed. Um, you know, and when women come to testify against him at his trial, he says to the jury, don't listen to these cackling hens. Um, he, he hates and despises women. And I think that he, he likes to punish them. Um, I mean, it, he does awful things like there's a poor woman who answers a Lonely Hearts advert. It's the fifth of his alleged victims. And she makes the mistake of lying about her true age. She's actually 55 and she pretends in her reply that she's, say, 45. And he realizes as soon as he sees her that uh, she's lied. And I think it's pretty clear because she had absolutely no money that he just decides to humiliate and then punish her and then kill her. So there's a sort of vengeance going on. There's something he's working out of his system where um, that is the first sort of side of it, which is the misogyny. The other thing that is quite clear is that he has a tremendously a ferocious sex drive. I mean, he is trawling for women the whole time, which is why um, I think it's pretty clear once you go dig into the documents that there were many, many more than, than 283 women um, because he, um, those are the ones that the police found in written records, answers to Lonely Hearts adverts, registered at matrimonial agencies. And then from the, the files that he kept on women, at the garage uh, he had in a Paris suburb called Clichy. But all the time he's picking up women on the metro, on buses, even hours before his arrest, he, he leaves his apartment where his current mistress is sleeping and he goes down into the metro and he picks up another woman and arranges a rendezvous. She's probably a prostitute for the following week. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, in in the end, that's what it is. It's it's about sex and power um, and it's about a really deeply, deeply mad man um, at large in a city and a, and a countryside that was largely unpoliced because of the sec uh, because of the war. All the all the policemen were away at the front. And to some extent, I think you could say that Landry was hiding in plain sight because depressingly, a lot of his own attitudes were sort of a warped version of the kind of views that French men had about what they called the feeble sex um, at the time. Could you describe his, his physical appearance? Was he a, a man women were automatically attracted to? Was he charismatic? I mean, what was the attraction? Well, this is difficult because I, I, most of the photographs of Landrieu were taken at, at the trial in 1921 after he, he had uh, been in prison for two and a half years uh, and had variously, so he'd starved himself at various times and he, he looked extraordinary because he was, he was haggard, he had a grey beard, he was completely bald and he, 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 the journalists just couldn't see how this man could possibly <laughs> have done what he did. And in my book, I, I use a photograph uh, taken of Landry, actually not very much earlier, when he was uh, just in his late 40s in 1918. 
and he goes to the theatre with his girlfriend, uh, his mistress, Fernande, um, and he's wearing a, a dinner jacket and a bow tie. And you can see, uh, when you see him then, when he's sort of still well-nourished, uh, that he had possibly a certain something about him. I mean, he, he, he was muscular, he was short, he had a beard, he was bald. Um, it's very difficult stuff to write about if you're a man, I think, because um, he must have had something about him. Um, there must have been some sort of something about his sexuality which which attracted some women, because because in the files that the police collected on him, there there were there was testimony from women who were clearly, as happened in wartime, were looking for sexual adventure and had had encountered Lansbury and then had a terrible time trying to to sort of say, well, actually, we didn't really do anything uh, when clearly something had happened. So I think that that was one side of it. I think the other thing that is, is quite interesting is that Landra, of course, he didn't need to be that attractive to attract women during the war because this was a country that was just denuded of young men. They were all away at the front. I mean, if you if you bear in mind that the generation of Frenchmen who were born between 1891 and 1895, more than a quarter of them, 28%, were wiped out during the First World War. So you have to imagine in Paris and other cities that it's a marriage swindler's paradise, really, because because there are no young men around. And if you're somebody like Landru, who is just above the age where he would have had to go and at least be enlisted in the military reserves, there's a lot of opportunity. So I think that's the other side of the equation. Um, he also had, to some extent, the gift of the gab. I mean, he'd been quite well educated. He was educated um, but, but in a Catholic uh, school run by monks. He had a pretty good vocabulary. He knew how to write sort of flowery letters. So he had all of that side of things. Um, but I wouldn't say at the end of it that meant that he was he was a sort of an Adonis. He certainly wasn't. I mean, he was short, um, markedly short, and he um, didn't really, uh, I think as, as, as time went by, he became more and more weird, really. I mean, he became uh, more obviously mad. So uh, I think by the end, he probably lost, just before his arrest, he probably lost most of that. There's certainly a lot of evidence that women are beginning to see through him in the last sort of six months uh, before his arrest. We will be right back. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. 
When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned. I suppose when you, you make the focus of your life seducing women, <laughs> you become pretty good at it after a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he, he pulls the same trick again and again, which is, is to, I mean, he, one of the things he does which is quite cunning is he, he is always... Uh, I mean, he, he, he's clever at doing Lonely Hearts adverts. I mean, the amazing thing with the Internet is you can actually read the originals of these 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 um, Lonely Hearts adverts, most of them, because they're digitized and they're up there on the website, um, the, the, the National Library's website, which is quite a creepy experience. But, but what you also see when you look at it is that he's very good at pitching himself because there's what the first, <clears throat> actually, I think it was the second that he that he placed in May 1915 in this newspaper called Le Journal, which had a huge readership, readership of about a million um, people. And Landry pitches it just right, because there's somebody in the, you know, who's just above his notice, who says, oh, I have a chateau, I have this, I have that. I mean, he's obviously lying, this guy. And then Landry says, you know, I'm, here I am, I'm single, um, I'm a widower, I've got savings of, you know, a few save savings, but not so much that that you would think he's he's lying, uh, but just enough to attract women, which I think is the other thing, by the way, which is that they were looking for financial security, a sort of sugar daddy who was going to look after them, look after them. Um, so he's good at pitching it like that. And then he and then he sort of does variations like he says, yes, I've got. Um, I'm a businessman over in Paris, but I, I, I live in Tunisia in the French colonies. Well, if you're in Paris during the First World War, you might quite like the idea of getting away to Tunisia um, with this successful businessman and getting away from the war. So he has cunning little ruses like that um, to, to trap women. He's pretty good at it at that level. So he's a serial killer. And I know that in the case of many serial killers, there are signs early on, even during childhood, small signs 
things escalating gradually over time. What were his early years like? Did he have some sort of traumatic experience with a woman that might have shaped this misogynistic attitude towards the female gender? Well, I mean, here we come to his, his, he's married with four children, I mean, which is a whole other story in itself. And he, if one goes all the way back to the beginning, he's born um, in 1869 on the Ile de la Cité, which is basically where Notre Dame, well, he, he literally is born opposite Notre Dame, right in the centre of, of, of Paris. And he goes to school on the neighbouring island, which is the Ile Saint-Louis, these two islands in the middle of the Seine. And he becomes, his father is a, is a furnace stoker and the, the family are deeply devout Catholics. And he's educated at the church school on the Ile Saint-Louis and he becomes an altar boy and then he becomes a subdeacon. And one day at mass, his uh, a young woman in the audience, in, 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 in the pews, uh, her eye alights on him, or so she says, and anyway, they become lovers. And this is his wife, who is also from a deeply devout family. She, she's a, um, a laundress. And in terms of Landru's early career, it's almost a case that you have to decide who you're going to believe, because his wife, after his arrest, gives a long interview to, in fact, Le Journal, um, the same newspaper, uh, I just mentioned, and her account is that he was a loving, faithful husband in the early years of the marriage, um, and then things went wrong because he was defrauded by somebody, and he became an inventor, and then he and then he went completely mad, and he was in and out of jail, and she suffered, and she had to bring up her four children, um, uh, scrimping a living as a laundress. Now, what she left out of that interview, of course, is the fact that come the First World War, she also does various things like forge the signatures of several of the women who have disappeared so Landry can get his hands on the women's money from their bank accounts. So she's a tainted witness. Um, this is a very roundabout answer to whether he had some traumatic experience. She would say that he just went bad. That was his wife's view. And in the end, she divorced him and washed her hands of him. Landru, when he was asked to um, describe his early life by the psychiatrists, he wrote a little memoir, heavily edited by the psychiatrist. It's very frustrating. But he does talk about, if you're talking about trauma, having two or three really very serious accidents where he hit his head against a chimney breast while he was at school as a little boy. Um, he had another serious head injury when he was doing military service. And a little later... He claimed, which I couldn't quite believe, that while he was fixing a car uh, and he was underneath the, 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 the engine, the car had a, had, was, was winched up with a jack and the jack had, had broken and the car had fallen on his head. I don't think that's true, but clearly he thought that all his problems were to do with, with, with being hit on the head. I found no evidence, none at all, of Landru um, having some sort of traumatic experience with a woman. Um, there is evidence, uh, and they tried, of of mental problems in his own family. I mean, his father committed suicide um, in 1912 by hanging himself from a tree in the Bois de Boulogne. And this was actually why Landry, when Landry was still in jail. And 
it's possible, therefore, that that you know this is some Landry had some sort of genetic mental illness, um, and that was that was the sort of cause of his problems. But as to as to his his really vicious misogyny. Um, I couldn't find anything sort of specific in his previous life. Um, I did find something <laughs> after he went on the run, which I think would explain uh, what what tilted him over uh, from being just a sort of common swindler into being somebody going on the rampage against women in this this really hateful fashion. I'd rather not say what it is because it's the hook at the end of my book. Um, because it, I think in, I think that is what the police missed when they were trying to to figure out why it had all happened and uh, you know what was what in the end was the trigger that had had unleashed the horror. Um, but it's there. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that the big reason this case broke open was due to the the tenacity of a sister of one of his victims. She did everything she could to find her missing sister. Can you tell the story about how she pieced things together and was eventually able to point the police towards Landrew? I mean, me, one of the most amazing uh, aspects of the whole story, which is by far and away the best detective in the whole case, was a housemaid living in Paris whose elder sister um, had disappeared at Gambay in 1917. And this housemaid, she's called Marie Lacoste, she was suspicious of Landru, whom she met quite a few times uh, with her sister um, right from the beginning. She thought he was a swindler. And she, the trouble was that she only thought he was a swindler. She didn't think he was a murderer. And she visited Gombe um, with her elder sister um, just before her elder sister disappeared and she basically snooped around the house and the gardens when Landry was not there. He had to do a trip back to Paris. And I think she came very, very close to actually discovering the real horror of what was going on there because she, she actually looked, tried to see through a locked sh- the, the keyhole of a locked shed in the garden and she could see bundles or packages uh, it seemed in the gloom, but she couldn't make out any more. Um, and not long after that, during the same visit, she had a huge row with her sister when she discovered that that Landru, who they knew as Frémier, um, Monsieur Frémier, had been taking, with her sister's permission, um, draining the, her bank account, all the savings in her banking bank account. And the two sisters had this huge row. They parted company. She never saw her sister again. But what then happens is that about a year later, I'm, I'm truncating the story a little, but about a year later, and this is just after the end of the First World War, her elder sister's son, who was who is blind, he was blinded during the war and invalided out of uh, out of the army, um, and is living in southwest France. He has had an accident. He's written to his mother. He can't get a reply, and he writes instead to the maid. And says, "Could you go round? Because I'm, I'm really in desperate trouble. I need to talk to my mother." Um, and uh, the maid goes round to where she thinks her sister is living in this apartment, and discovers that the apartment is empty, and that the, her elder sister has not been there, in fact, for 
um, more than a year. And she puts two and two together and she realizes that Landru, the man she knows as Fremier, has killed her sister almost certainly. And at that point, she proves herself to be a real sleuth because she pieces together in a dossier every single thing she can remember about Landru's movements with her sister, about where they had lived, what they did, what the house looked like a description of him, what he got up to. And it's a very, very well-organized piece of research by a not well-educated housemaid with not much time to do it because, of course, she's working the whole time uh, with maybe just half a day off a week. And as soon as she's done this, she takes, she goes to the police and uh, the police, the first thing the police officer says to her, in, this is in Paris, is, I can't help you. Um, because actually the case, these women, your sister disappeared down in Gombe, you have to go to the authorities there. And so she writes this letter and it's really very moving because she writes to the mayor of, 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 of Gombe uh, in a, a sort of semi-literate letter, but with all the information that the mayor needed to go and investigate the house uh, and the grounds, except for the fact that she says that the man's name is Fremier and the mayor writes a very sort of disingenuous reply back saying, we don't know anybody called Fremier. Uh, and indeed, he said, we'd never heard of your sister either. Well, that was true, but they did know exactly who who um, she was talking about because they knew the man. This is the mayor and the village school teacher who wrote, uh, who was the mayor's secretary. They knew him as, as Dupont. Um, so they'd been economical, very economical with the truth. The one thing that the mayor did do was say to the uh, add a note to the, to, to the maid saying that there had been another woman, sister of another of uh, who had written to him, saying that her own sister had disappeared and could he investigate. And the mayor gives the housemaid the address of this woman. They join forces and they file a joint complaint um, and to cut a very long story short, the, the, it, they force the police to investigate and it eventually lands on the desk of a very lazy policeman detective in Paris, um, Jules Bellin, who is incompetent and a liar and also actually a misogynist. And he does some very desultory inquiries and then writes up a report which just lifts all the research that the housemaid has done and claims it as his own. And he sort of gives up. Um, and it's just at this point that a f another maid who works in the same house, who has seen Landru because he has come calling at this house because he's worried about Marie Lacoste, the, 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 the amateur detective, because she's after him. Uh, this other maid, by chance, spots Landru shopping in a crockery shop on the Rue de Rivoli in Paris. And she follows him out of the shop and he's with another woman. And unfortunately, she gets on the bus and then she thinks he's recognised her. So she gets off again and she runs back home, tells Marie. Um, and Marie, the maid, she's got the phone number of the, the policeman. She calls the policeman. The policeman goes back to the shop, gets the card the business card that Landry has left, left for delivery of this crockery, finds the address, realizes that the name is actually Guillet, 
not Fremier, which is the name on the arrest warrant. And so the policeman goes home and he comes back eventually the following day um, with the correct name on the arrest warrant and he arrests Landry. But in the end, it's the maid who gets him arrested with the help of her friend, the other maid. It isn't the police who are really throughout the case completely out of their depth. Um, so it's a it's it's actually quite a heroic story if you consider the the odds that were against any woman really in that at that time um, pursuing a pretty terrifying man with the police not at all willing to help her. Yes, and, and the obvious irony of all of this is that the housemaid, who basically finds the murderer single-handedly, is working against all of these sexist men who believe that women are inferior to them. But exactly, and I, I think that, I mean, I was actually quite slow off the mark with this because um, at the trial, which is this tremendous set-piece event, I mean, it lasts for three and a half weeks, and all everybody who's anybody is there. Maurice Chevalier goes, um, Colette, the novelist, covers the case as a, as a journalist on the first day. Believe it or not, Rudyard Kipling is there for one of the days. He was passing through Paris, and I think somebody just took him down to um, to, to watch it. And Landru's lawyer, I'm, I know this sounds off the point, but I'll come back to, to to explain what I mean. I mean, he's the greatest lawyer in France. He's, he's called Vincent de Moreau-Giaffery, and his whole game is to try and make Landru shut up and to turn the whole case into a quest to save Landry from the guillotine. And the, Moreau doesn't even question the fact that Landry has, has stolen from these women. And he knows, and he lets the jury know, that Landry is anyway going to be destined for um, a penal settlement in uh, probably in Guyana, French Guyana in the Caribbean, where he would have been killed effectively uh, very soon because the regime was so harsh. Um, but Moho passionately believes that, that there isn't sufficient evidence for Landry to go to the guillotine. And the, the case he constructs is that all these women were basically sluts. They were all loose, immoral women who were possibly all prostitutes, were certainly sort of close to being prostitutes. One was definitely a prostitute. And so it's actually a tremendously misogynistic case in itself. And what he's really asking the jury to believe is he's doing a kind of devil's bargain with the, with the jury, which is to say, except, you know, I will say to you that he stole from them. He was a pimp. He basically traded them into the white slave trade. He actually says that um, and makes that, the, you know, the most likely hypothesis for what happened to these women in return, you know, for, for basically offering you that, you know, you cannot send Landry to the guillotine because there isn't there isn't enough evidence that, you know, there's no certainty that he killed these women. So the it, it is a very, very misogynistic case. And it, it actually, in the end, it took me a long time to realize that it wasn't about that Morrow was sort of trying to steal the show. But actually, the real story was about the misogyny and about both Landry's hatred of women and about this terrible atmosphere that the women had to endure who came to testify against Landrieu at the trial, where the coverage of the trial was almost, some of it was almost pornographic. I mean, the, you know, there's one reporter in the in the audience who sees a, a, a young actress taking her seat in the, in the gallery. 
And he, he writes, gosh, you know, wouldn't it be great if she played one of Landru's victims and one could see her burnt naked on stage? I mean, he actually says that. Um, and there are other really sort of disgusting um, things that the newspapers do. So it's, the whole trial is just drenched in misogyny. And Landru took advantage of that by claiming all the rights of a man and, 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 and sort of saying to the jury that you just don't want to listen to these women who are coming to testify about against me because they're women. They're just making it up. So in the end, that was the sort of, to me, the, the, the strongest thing that came out. There's little to no physical evidence, but lots of testimony against him on the witness stand. Do you think it was the testimony of these women that ultimately swayed the jury to the verdict of guilty? What was the determining factor? Well, I say, I feel in the end, and I wrote this, that this was a case in the end that was decided by the heart, not the head. And what I meant really was that it, it was it was just draining, wrenchingly emotional testimony. Um, and the jury was sort of left with a choice. They could either um, they could either use their heads, if you like, and say, well, look, the evidence that he'd stolen from them was overwhelming. I mean, the, the, the only person who, who protested his innocence about the thefts was Landru himself. The evidence of murder was pretty strong was it conclusive and that was a that was a very very difficult one to answer um i think if you were actually looking for that level of proof that level of certainty as the defense lawyer said it didn't pass the test particularly because the prosecution case was so absurd i mean almost certainly he did kill them but you couldn't be absolutely sure and uh, you know his neck was on the line literally but in french law um you only needed what they, you know, in French, in French, it was an intimate conviction. You had to know in your heart, your conscience had to tell you that this man deserved to die. And I felt that actually, in the end, the trial hinged on various very, very emotional pieces of testimony by women who had no evidence that he had um, killed the women, killed their sisters or their daughters or um, I mean mostly they were relatives or female friends of the missing women they had no direct evidence but they did have the sort of testimony of what Landru had done to their sisters in terms of everything that had happened before they disappeared the awful kind of humiliation of them and terrible duplicity and just cruelty really um, and I, I felt myself but it's purely subjective that I think that, that in the end, the, the defense lost the case, Moho, the, the lawyer lost the case quite early on when the sister of the first of the missing women, um, she was asked by Moho to describe a dream that she'd had about her missing sister. And the point Moho was going to make, I'm sure, was that um, she's just made it up. This just proves that she's a fantasist. There's no evidence for this dream. But she tells the dream. And she talks about her sister coming to, to visit her in the night and her neck is bleeding. And uh, the, the filament, the, 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 well, the witness says, how did you, you know, how did you do that? And her sister says, well, it was Landry who did it. Um, he, he cut my throat. Um, and the sister says, did it hurt in the dream? And, and, and the sister who's gone missing says, no, I, I, I was sleeping. At which point... 
the woman describing the dream just breaks down and says, oh, my sister, my poor, poor sister. And she's in tears. And Mohu says nothing more. He does not continue the cross-examination because he knows that he's blown it because you're looking at this poor woman, you know, bereaved, miserable, and you cannot not pity her and hate Landru at the same time. And I think in the end, that was what uh, lost the case uh, for, for, for the defence. Was It was the emotion, not not the evidence. But it took a long time. As Landru was sitting in the courtroom, watching, listening to all of this hostile testimony, what was his disposition? I mean, how did he handle all of this? Obviously, the jury was watching how he reacted to what was going on. Well, he, he was uncontrollable, and that was, that was part of the problem that the, the defense lawyer had. And also, he, he, could, he had a right to silence, but he, couldn't, he didn't really have that right, because in French law, the, 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 the judge, the presiding senior judge, examines the defendant and sort of tests the evidence before um, the prosecuting lawyer or the, the or the defense attorney have have their their go. A lot. The judge uh, was was a pretty clever um, lawyer, and he he got Landry talking too much. And in particular, uh, Landry kept saying when he was asked what had happened to the women. He kept saying, ah, instead of just saying, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't the faintest idea, which was the obvious answer. He kept saying, oh, I have a kind of sacred contract. It's all private. I can't talk about it. Sort of creating the impression that he knew something that he just wasn't at liberty to reveal, um, which was disastrous for the defense because, um, they, you know, the prosecution, of course, made him repeat this 11 times because there were 11 victims and he had different variations on it. But... It, it, it just that was the first thing that that Landry did in court, which was a disaster. His behaviour was very volatile. Um, sometimes he would erupt. Uh, he had a very caustic temper, and he would yell across at the prosecuting attorney. You know, I wish I only, you know, my head is at stake. I wish I had an extra head uh, to offer you. Um, you're so bloodthirsty, and, and all sorts of things like that. The best thing from the defence lawyer's point of view was when Landry, who liked playing the attorney himself, he got buried in these notes that he he made. He had these colour coded dossiers and he insisted on having all the documents from the case in his cell, which if if literally true, would have meant that he would have had seven and a half thousand pages of documents in his cell because it was the, the case, just the paperwork had just swollen and swollen by then. And he would sit for hours on end um, scribbling these notes um, as if he was sort of basically being his own defense attorney. Um, and nothing came of it. I mean, I, it, this was to me a, a very sure sign of his madness that he was completely absorbed in this. And sometimes people would look at him and they would think, well, he's, you know, he's just like a kind of a clerk or something like that because he wore a bowler hat. He had this rather sort of odd tunic he wore, but he had a he had a bow tie and he looked quite respectable and he could be quite calm and then he would erupt uh, and you'd say well no actually um, there's something pretty odd about him and when he was really a full pelt with this grey beard and sort of bushy eyebrows completely bald hectoring the jury and the court about this and that um, he, he did look completely mad so he was always great entertainment which is why people came again and again to the to the trial that the audience built 
so that by the end, in a courtroom of probably a capacity of about 220, one journalist reckoned there were more than 500 uh, in, in the court by the end. The, the, the judge completely lost control of the trial um, and they were spilling over into the, the well of the court. Um, all over, you know, women were perched up on the window. You can see that in some of the, the, the photographs. And it was bedlam. Um, so, but all the time, I mean, Landry was this extraordinarily charismatic figure at the, 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 the centre of everybody's attention. So he makes a, a drawing while in jail, right? That some people will later believe is the closest thing to a confession he'll ever make. It's a picture of his kitchen. Is that right? Well, no, what he did was he, he yeah, well, actually, you're right. I mean, it was during the trial. So while he was he was in jail, he drew a picture. He had been briefly uh, in his youth an architect's clerk. So he knew how to draw. He draws a picture of this notorious little oven in his kitchen at uh, the house at Gambe, which allegedly was where he burnt some of the remains of the women he had killed, although no bones were ever found, no human remains were ever found in this, this oven. Um, and he gives, before his execution, he gives the picture for safekeeping to the assistant defence lawyer. Uh, and the picture has a sort of caption on it where one of the witnesses, a woman, had said, um, he'd said to um one of the women he'd invited down there, who survived, by the way, um, boasting about his oven, that you can burn anything in there. And he was throwing in meat scraps and all the rest of it. And Landry writes this very, very cryptic message beneath this quote, saying that, and I'm afraid to say right now, I can't remember quite how he put it, but it was it was ambiguous. And he said it wasn't what happened in front of the wall. It's what happened in it. it what happened? What mattered was what happened behind the wall, which kind of got people thinking when this drawings resurfaced decades later after the after the um, defense, the, the assistant defense lawyer died, his daughter produced it on French television. And people thought, well, this must be some sort of clue that Landry is giving about what had really gone on at Gambe. Um, I think it was actually just another indication of Landry's madness that he, he it just amused him to sort of set up something that was was a, a, a red herring or a false trail. So it wasn't like that kind of moment where there was a breakthrough because of the drawing. It was more that the drawing created even more kind of obscurity and ambiguity surrounding the case. So what happens to Landrew after he's convicted? He doesn't have much time, does he? Well, it's very bizarre because because what you have to imagine is this, this tumultuous scene in the courtroom where um, hundreds and hundreds of people, and he has just been sentenced to death by a majority only uh, of the jury find him guilty uh, of the murders. So it's 9-3. Um, but they then bizarrely uh, unanimously signed the appeal for clemency, which would have got Landrieu, uh, saved Landrieu from the guillotine. It would have sent him to the penal settlement in, in French Guyana. Um, and Landrieu refuses to sign the um, the appeal for clemency, insisting that since he's innocent, he doesn't need to do it, which has a certain sort of logic to it, I suppose. Um, 
And he, he basically goes into a kind of funk in his cell for several weeks after the, the, the sentence. He is persuaded eventually to sign the, the clemency appeal. Um, and so this is November. and Well, actually, sorry, it's December 1921. Um, and gradually the whole thing sort of grinds through the, the, the French legal um, system, judicial system, and it goes to the president of France, which is how it worked in those days. And Moho goes to, to plead for Landry's life, really, with the president of France, and he fails. Um, and so Landry is due to be executed the next morning, just outside the gates of the prison in Versailles, which, which was actually next to the courtroom as well. It's, it's rather creepy because you can actually just stand on the spot um, and you know exactly where it is because it was three and a half meters, according to French law, directly outside the prison gates. Um, now, what Landry hears overnight, um, he shouldn't have been told that he was going to be executed, but he does hear. And he also hears that the prosecuting attorney um, is not going to be present. And this outrages Landry. And he um, sits down and writes this extraordinary letter to the prosecuting attorney insisting on his innocence again, saying to the prosecuting attorney that, uh, that he could tell just by looking into his eyes during the, during the, the trial that the, even the prosecuting attorney knew that he was innocent and that he'd been caught out by Landrieu's neat answers. And it goes on and on, um, you know, how they, 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 he couldn't have possibly burnt the women in the oven because it was just like a children's oven. Um, and this this letter, uh, which a newspaper got uh, managed to get hold of, it's pages and pages. So it must have it must have taken him most of the night. Um, and then you have this scene, um, <laughs> which is all executions are pretty macabre. But I think Landry's is 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 up there with 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 some of the most sort of extraordinary executions because the whole thing um is not well choreographed um he gets up and his defense lawyer is there and various other people and he has his morning sort of toilet where he combs his beard because he's very proud of his beard he's then taken to the prison registry office uh where of course the beard gets cut to shreds um uh, by the prison barber he's offered the ritual rum um, and a cigarette. And he declines both because he, he one of the sort of peculiar things about Landry was that he was a pretty much teetotaler and he didn't smoke. And he's got enough self-possession at that point to say those two things. And he's just about to be marched out, hands tied behind his back to the guillotine when they have to stop it because um, they'd forgotten to notify the transport company and the morning tram line with the, with the workers runs straight past the guillotine um, and a tram is, is, is heading up, it's late and the driver refuses to stop and wait for the execution. So they all have to stop to let this, this tram go past the guillotine with these workers jeering over the prison wall at Landru and it carries on. Finally, the gates open and Landru is emerges and he's actually caught it's not in my book but an artist sketches him just as he's uh about to be slammed on the guillotine uh, and it's a most extraordinary picture because he's he's sort of he's had his beard shaved off he looks understandably kind of absolutely terrified 
And the two men behind him, they looked like a rather sinister Laurel and Hardy act because they were wearing bowl hats. One, one was thin and the other was fat. I mean, it's, it, it's the most extraordinary picture. He's put on the guillotine. The guillotine is locked, at which point the two assistants withdraw. And normally what would happen is that the blade would drop. It would all be over in an instant. Now, for some reason, that didn't happen. And one journalist, then they were kept back behind a barricade, but he could see enough. And he reckoned there was a, a there was an interval of seven seconds before the blade dropped. Now, whether that was because there was some problem with the mechanism or whether, as I think, France's chief executioner, Monsieur Daibler, was rather relishing the moment um, is an open question. But it, it was a pretty kind of horrible uh, end to a horrible life. Um, and he is then buried uh, in a cemetery in Versailles of, in an unmarked grave. Um, eventually, he's it's it's a sort of pauper's grave initially, and then the family refused to renew it, um, and he's just reburied elsewhere, somewhere in this absolutely huge cemetery, and, and nobody really knows where he is. Back after a few brief messages. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned for the final time. I'd really like to know more about your theory that there were more women killed by Landrieu than those 10 he was convicted for killing. Yeah. I'd love to ask you about that. How, how did you go about researching this? I mean, did you check to see if other women in the area during these years had gone missing too and try to connect him in some way geographically? No, it was, it was more specific. It was actually the other way around um, because I think that what happened was they discovered the, the, the notebook very soon on, immediately after his arrest, and they found this list of 11 individuals, 10 women 
one one young man um and they were all names or code names which were pretty easy to de decode because they once witnesses started coming forward you could see uh who these these people had been and so they were able to get very precise information which they could collate with the notebook about when the these women had disappeared and how they married up with with the names in the in the notebook so there was a sort of timeline that the case had that these women had disappeared at certain times here was the notebook therefore uh this must be the sum total of the murders now the problem is that there are there are several problems but the main one i think is that there were several witnesses um who had seen very very suspicious things smoke coming out of laundry's house packages being dropped in the middle of the night in 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 the pond near gambe um and the problem was that these were very very good witnesses but they had seen these incidents at times which did not match the disappearances in the notebook um and the chronology of the prosecution case so they were discounted um and there was one in particular a doctor who was bicycling back to his barracks actually during the first world war and he sees smoke and it's a very precise very detailed witness statement and he sees smoke coming out of laundry's house this is at the, in the evening foul smelling smoke and he puzzles about it for a bit and then he carries on and then he gets a puncture riding past this pond deep in the forest and he's mending his puncture and he sees obviously landru coming along in this distinctive tradesman's van that he drove getting out of the car landru doesn't see the doctor with a great heavy package over his 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 shoulder um disappearing on the far side of the pond behind a clump of reeds and dropping um the package in the water the trouble with the doctor's testimony is not that it that it's that it's wrong it's just that it happens at the wrong time 6 months after one of the known women had disappeared and 6 months before another of the known women had disappeared so that's the first problem with the notebook the second problem with the notebook is he didn't buy it until after the first woman had disappeared and he didn't start taking detailed notes in it until more than a year after he acquired it not only that but you can actually find from various bits of testimony one woman in particular at the same pond near gambe that he didn't note everything in his notebook so it's not a comprehensive log of his movements and you then come back to this question about why did he write the list it's pretty clear to me that he must have written the list after the last of the known women the 11th victim on the the charge sheet disappeared because it is a list that is clearly written in one go in the same handwriting on the same page and i think that what landry was doing and this was shortly before he was arrested was trying to remember what he had done which is not of course the same thing as being able to remember what he had done because he he complained a lot about his memory and forgetting things which is of course the standard defense of a con man they always do that but i think in landry's case there was some possibly some truth to it because if you consider what he had done and what what he was known to have done which was to pursue hundreds of women um rent flats uh, apartments all around paris lockups garages 
um, maintain a wife and four children, all the while he's on the run from the police anyway from previous convictions, and he's charging around, uh, never stopping, for about five years. He wouldn't necessarily have remembered everything, and I think that the awful truth is that, that actually murder had become such a sort of banal event to him that he was remembering in the list the most memorable ones, which 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 was not necessarily all the ones that he had done, I'm, and I'm pretty sure that was the case. So, it's, so that's the sort of logic of it. Um, that, uh, and I I think it is you know one cannot say at the end he definitely killed more than the eleven on the charge sheet, but I think it is much more likely that he did than that he didn't. Um, that's some pretty impressive sleuthing there on your part. <laughs> I got obsessed and I got I got obsessed particularly because the police were so lazy. I mean, I think what happened with the police was that the list made it easy for them and they, they were under resourced. I mean, there's no question about that. It was the end of the First World War. A lot of a lot of the police policemen were still hadn't been demobilized. And it was a very, very complicated case. But the list made it easy if all they were trying to do was send laundry to the guillotine. It was sort of like theory-laden observation. Here's the list. Here are the women. Um, that's all we need to do. The thing is that the police were also liars because they gave the impression, which then became sort of an assumed fact, that they had traced every single woman that they knew about, all 283. And that meant all the one, I mean, some of them had died, but not died in suspicious circumstances. They'd been able to explain all those women, what had happened to them, apart from these 10 missing women and the, the one young man. The trouble is that actually in the Paris police archives, buried in the wrong file, in, amid thousands and thousands of documents, there is a, a kind of balance sheet that the, the, the police drew up uh, where they state quite the emphatically that they had failed to trace 72 of the women out of the 283 of the total that they had. Now, that doesn't mean that Landry killed 72, but it does mean that the police really knew much, much less about Landry than they claimed. That's just really interesting. I know that this story is not one known necessarily on a global scale, but there still have been a number of film adaptations of this are there any that you find especially entertaining or well done? Which one sticks with the historical facts most closely? Well, uh, the, the short answer to that is no. Um, the, the, I mean, the interesting thing is in France, Landru is as well known as Jack the Ripper in England or, or um, Christie or, or, say, in America, H.H. H. Holmes. Um, you know, I mean, he, he, I was on a metro uh, when I was when I was on a re research trip in Paris and I gave up my seat for um, an old lady and she we got chatting because I like to practice my French and <laughs> she said well what are you working on and I, I, I said well I'm writing a book about Landru and her, she said did he do it I mean she knew you know I mean it, it's that sort of thing it's it's part of everyday culture films about Landru um, well there's one which is quite an interesting story which is um, Nothing with Landry is simple, but um, Orson Welles um, heard about Landry and shortly after Citizen Kane, when he was at the height of his 
biddability or his, his, his spending power as a, as, a, as a producer because of the success of Citizen Kane, he did what seems to have been a sort of treatment of the Landry story. And he had this sort of Orson Welles-like idea of casting Charlie Chaplin sort of against type as Landrieu. It's a very vague, murky story, but but Chaplin took the idea, probably paid, seems to have paid Wells some money, and turned it into a film that that eventually came out under the title Monsieur Verdoux, just after the um, Second World War, 1947. And in it, he plays this bank clerk who has lost his job and needs to support his family and kills 14 wealthy widows. I think it's 14. It's a travesty of the original plot, but it is the original story, but it is loosely based on Landru. And actually, it's quite a good film, but it's not a good film for the reason that it is remotely faithful um, to, to, to Landru. It's just that it's it's quite a good dark comedy. Um, the French director, Claude Chabrol, um, he produced a film about uh, Landry in 1963, which was an abomination. I mean, I, I, it, it is actually an abomination because he he completely ignored the, um, the story, but but sort of tried to pass it off as true. Um, and the the women were all reinvented as sort of elegant Parisian ladies, when of course they weren't like that. Um, the script was by the French novelist Françoise Sagan, and. Landry's last mistress, who had wanted to be her star, a star herself, she actually sued Chabrol because she saw her own portrayal by Chabrol's then girlfriend, future wife, Stéphane Audran, a very, very famous French film star who died recently. And she couldn't bear it because Stéphane Audran was everything she had wanted to be. She was a star, sexy, and Landry's former mistress, now an old woman, she sued. And she did get some damages, not as much as she wanted. But it's a very sad story because she retires to an old people's home and a few years later, whether because she can't get over Landru, because she, she, she maintained for the rest of her life that she was still in love with him, or perhaps possibly because she, she, she was quite ill, she committed suicide. Um, but those are the two most famous films there's there are others there's another one in france which is just called landry which was a kind of schlock horror uh tv movie um so from time to time there there have been films about landry i don't myself think that 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 any of them have been particularly successful uh as a sort of representation of what what happened i would think that a, a film adaptation hopefully of your book through the eyes of the sister who helped solve the crime would be an especially compelling way to tell the story. Well, I would too. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm open to offers. Um, it's um, yeah, no, I, I I think it has the makings of a, of a, a great drama. I think I'm not a I'm not a script writer, but I think the difficulty, the challenge is 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 trying to trying to sort of make sense of the complexity so the reader or the viewer doesn't get lost. Which was the you know one of the challenges I had in the book was trying to sort of you know, keep it simple, but on the other hand, not not sort of make it so not make it simplistic. Um, but yes, I do, um, and I, I it is a tremendously dramatic. I mean, it, it, the drama of the trial is is quite extraordinary because um, it is a sort of titanic struggle over over things that are quite deep, like um, you know, 
the death penalty, but it's also this extraordinary story of female vengeance as well, where these, these women are coming to testify against Landru and sort of trying to will him to the, the guillotine while he's protesting his innocence. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's great drama from that point of view. And that is why, of course, it was covered in such depth by the newspapers, because it sold newspapers. This was the great age of newspapers. And day after day, when there were all these other things going on, like, the, like uh, from the beginning of, of, of the investigation, you know, there, there was a French newspaper who actually said that the government's just concocted this case because it's so much more interesting than having to follow the wretched performance of the government at the Paris peace talks. So it has every ingredient from that point of view. So I'd like to ask you the question that the old woman you gave up your seat for asked you. Do you think he committed the murders? I'm sure of that. I, I think what's what's much more troubling is 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 the fact that I'm pretty sure that in fact, I am sure that he killed more. And the question is, how many more? And I think that that's the that's the most disturbing as aspect of the case is that one really doesn't know. Um, and it could have been that he killed dozens more. Um, he certainly had the opportunity because he was really, as I said, not really policed at all in any meaningful sense. Um, so... Yeah, he was guilty. And I, I, I feel torn, and I, I sort of say this at the end of the book, that on the one hand, I, I really don't believe in the death penalty at all in any circumstances. So I like to think that I would have voted with the minority on the jury to acquit him of the murder charges safe in the knowledge that he was going to be killed anyway, because they would, you know, they would have sent him to, 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 you know, a really hellish penal settlement, hard labor, and he wouldn't have survived that. But actually, when you sort of, the, 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 the testimony of the women who, who came in tears, most of them, to, 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 to bear witness to what he'd done to their, to, to their sisters or daughters is, is so moving, so heart-wrenching. And you hate Landru so much that I'm not so sure I wouldn't have actually voted, um, found him guilty in court, knowing that he'd have been sent to the guillotine. I did an episode a while back about the S-Bahn serial killer. Yeah. And I mean, it's a different war, a different country, but there are some similarities, especially the, the fact that all of these women were left in the city, uh, Berlin, in the case of the S-Bahn killer, Paris, of course, in your story, while the men have gone away to fight. And it's an absolutely perfect praying ground for a guy like this. He's got the, the city at his fingertips. The police, as they, I think they commonly do in cases like this, they build him up. And they say, oh, yeah, he was he was really strategic. He was cunning and devious, you know, master of disguise and deception and all the rest of it. Actually, I don't think he was. I think I, he's remarkably casual. Um, and um, he's obviously a very distinctive looking person anyway. And he just gets away with it because nobody's keeping an eye on him. I mean, one of the things, if, if it wasn't for the fact that he um, he was a mass murderer, it would be quite funny, but but the, the main attention he attracts from the very very limited police, but the forces down in in Vermeer and then Gombe. I mean, it's basically in, in both places. It's just some elderly local constable. 
But the main attention he attracts from the locals is is the suspicion that he might be a German spy because there was spy fever, you know, in France at this time. And um, he he certainly behaves very suspiciously. But it's a sort of curious thing that because all of that attention is on him as 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 an enemy agent, nobody considers the possibility that actually he might be a killer. Um, So I think he, yeah, he's sort of very much, it's a cliche, but he's hiding in plain sight he seems more normal than he is because because it's a very very chauvinistic society so the sort of views he has about women are pretty commonplace and these poor women um their lives are not treated particularly seriously in the sense that there are you know hundreds of thousands of young frenchmen losing their life every year at the front who cares about these women? You know, they've, 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 they, you know, if they've disappeared, so they've disappeared. And I think that that was another side of it. Why the police just didn't really feel it was worth investigating. You, you've gotten some great reviews from UK newspapers, but what about France? Has the book been translated into French? Have you gotten feedback from people in France about your book? They're in discussion. Uh, so we're hoping, um, that, it, that the French language uh, version of it will appear. I mean, it's the set, you know, the big event that is coming up is next April. It's the centenary of his, his, his uh, arrest. And I think in France, that's when there will be, I mean, there's never no interest in Landru, but there's a whole period between the centenary of his arrest and his trial uh, where I think there are various events going to be coming up. So, um, yeah, hopefully it will appear in, in, in French translation soon. Which will be bad news for me because there's actually an awful lot of original material that I translated from the original French into English, which I will then have to put back into the original French. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Bad news on some some level, but hopefully when it's all done, it will be of some benefit to you <laughs> to have it in print in the country where his case is still so popular. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And indeed, actually, there's also a pretty big English language market in France these days. Um, the, 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 you, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, people in France who listen to m- Most Notorious. Yeah, we do. Uh, we, we, we do have some listeners in France, yes. Uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. So for people who want to learn more about you, your book, your other work, where can we direct them? Well, unfortunately, I don't have a website, but actually, I'd also say that my previous book would have zero sales in America because it was about a Victorian cricketer. But if you, if you <laughs> uh, um, Google me uh, and don't confuse me with the the, the, the the renegade British Secret Service agent of the same name, you will find me. I mean, I, th- I think that's the, the, the best thing to say is that if you go to the link on uh, for the book on, on Amazon, um, you'll find me. And if you Google me as well. Um, so I should have a website. You're right. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. It's really a marvelous book. Thank you very much, Eric. Again, I've been speaking to Richard Tomlinson, author of Landrew's Secret, The Deadly Seductions of France's Lonely Hearts Serial Killer. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.